Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. We're going to start reading at verse 12 today and go on to um, most of verse 18. So Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. Go ahead and read that and then we'll bow and pray for another moment. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Will you pray with me? Now, Lord, as we open your word, I ask that you would teach us full obedience, holy reverence, true humility, test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Amen. All right, so there are four main things I want us to grab onto out of this passage. The first one is that we might embrace a unique situation of life and find gospel opportunity in the midst of it. So I want to start by asking you a question, and some of you actually um, chimed in on Facebook this past week to answer this question. What does it take for you to lose your joy? How long is that road from having it to the thing that happens that sucks it away to losing it? And what is that thing that can steal your joy? Most likely, it's in the middle of our unmet expectations. We have a hope for a way that something should go, and it doesn't go that way. And I think we all know that that happens more often than we'd like. Paul shows us in this passage that he does not function with a conditional idea of joy. That he will have joy if certain things are met, certain expectations are met. But rather, his joy supersedes his expectations. Surely he would rather be out of prison than in prison, right? This is what he's talking about when he says, the thing that has happened to me, brothers. What's really happened to me. He's in prison. Nobody wants to be in prison. Paul's goal was not to say, I want to be imprisoned for Christ. This is an interesting thing because the early church dealt with martyrdom pretty frequently. And there was one point in church history where some Christians believed that the most faithful thing to do was to suffer for Christ. And therefore, I must go out and seek suffering. So basically going around and, you know, punching a guard in the face and telling him about Jesus at the same time so that he can hope to be arrested so that then he knows his salvation is secure. We know this is ridiculous, right? Jesus does warn us that persecution will come. And as a Christian, we are called to be ready for that. And Paul shows us that Jesus was telling the truth. While he most certainly would have rather been outside of prison, he is still able to rejoice in what God is doing within and without his own situation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is a constant source of joy 
for anyone who will draw near to him, for anyone who will receive it. Accept the means by which that joy is given, even if it's contrary to a person's expectations. So Paul says this, I want you to know brothers. And this introduction here in verse 12, if you look at it with me, was a common form of letter writing that showed a degree of intimacy. So while Paul is indeed writing an instructive um, letter to a large number of people at the Church of Philippi, it was meant to be heard as from one who holds a close relationship with them. He's not a stranger. He's not a, a distant voice that's leading the church. He is, in their minds, one of them. So Paul is writing this formal letter, letter to people that he cares about. And the truth that he brings in the passage is meant to be applied and embraced in the lives of its hearers. Situations of life, and yet gospel opportunity remains. Even in their situations of life, sorry, even in their situations of life, gospel opportunity remains. And Paul's showing that while he's sitting in prison. And in many cases, and in Paul's case here, the situation isn't necessarily something that blocks, it's certainly not something that blocks the gospel opportunity. It's not something that slows down the gospel opportunity, but is actually something that advances it. So if you look at that passage again in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There's a surprise at the end of the sentence. What's happened to me is not, oh boy, well I'm in prison, guys, so it's not like they're playing capture the flag and he got caught, so you have to finish the game without him. Right? Anybody ever play capture the flag? Is that a thing? Okay. Just not even if you don't. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. All right, good. It hits somebody. It works. All right. <laughs> um, so, you know, it would serve us all to remember from last week what Paul had prayed for way back in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That prayer, if we are going to see the kind of gospel advancement that God is ready for in Lima, we need to have abundant love for those he longs to make his own. And we need to let that love supersede the expectations of our situations. And in that is joy. So Paul's telling them that through, though imprisonment seems like it would slow down the mission, the word rather there, the Greek word malon, shows that the next phrase is surprising. And the gospel has advanced, not stopped, not stalled, not continued steadily, but rather it has increased in its reach to the lost. This should give us great confidence in the sovereignty of God. If you're not familiar with that term, sovereignty is rulership. And we believe that the Bible tells us that God is sovereign over all things. And it even came up this morning as we were in Sunday school that there's the common objection. If God is real and if God is sovereign, how can he allow terrible things to happen? Plug in whatever terrible thing comes to your mind. Maybe you have that in your own heart. Maybe there's somebody that you know that struggles with that very fact. If God exists, if he's powerful, he can't be loving. Because if he's powerful enough to change my situation, why doesn't he do it? Well, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign, that God is all-powerful, and that God is love. How can all those things be explained? I don't think that they can. I don't think we can give a, a, a canned answer that says, this is how we always understand what God is doing. There's much in the Bible that is meant for us to be understood. There's a lot of things that are, and they're meant for us to be believed. There are some things that are meant for us to be believed and meant for us to trust in. And that that finds its purpose there. So this rather 
This, this situation that Paul is in takes this surprising turn and shows that, boy, God, I don't know why I'm in prison here, isn't something that's in Paul's mind. Because he already, off the bat, while he's writing this letter, knows the gospel is advancing. I don't need to wonder why God is doing what he's doing. Does God always show us, in the midst of our difficult circumstances, why he won't move, why he won't change things? Yes or no? no. Does he, thank you. <laughs> he does not always show us that. Is he obligated to? No. Is he obligated to because he loves us, therefore he's obligated to tell us? No. Parents, we say this every week, multiple times, to the question of why. And the answer is, because, finish it, parents, because I said so. And that's all you need to know. In talking to my two-year-old and trying to explain why she can't, you know, watch another Winnie the Pooh movie, or why we can't go out to eat, or why we can't have more ice cream. And she understands those things to be good things. They're fun things. But we have to draw the line somewhere. And with a two-year-old, I can't sit down and be like, well, let me explain to you what happens to your brain when you have too much exposure to TV or sugar. Right? She's not going to understand that. And in some ways, though God has revealed to us, and, and it's interesting, it's a great comfort for us to know the way that Jesus looks at us, he says that he calls us his friend. And he calls us his friend because he shows us the things that he's doing and he includes us in it, right? But there are still some things that we are not meant entirely to understand. But we can look at this passage, and though I may not see why God is doing what he's doing in my life circumstance, I can trust, while I look at Paul here, that God is not a changing God who deals with people in different ways, but that as his people, I can expect that he's doing something greater than I can even imagine. Amen? That was a pretty good amen. Look at this word advanced. The Greek word is prokopin. I don't think I pronounced that correctly. But it's a word that was used to describe the process of a group of pioneers going ahead of an army and cutting a path in the wilderness for them to march through. It's an exciting image for us to latch onto. To think that the, the, thing that the, situa- the situation that you're in right now, or maybe that you see someone else in, or maybe something that you've dealt with in the past, that God could be using that situation to cut a path for the gospel to come through. That makes me way more excited about whatever kind of trial may come my way. Whatever kind of difficulty, whatever kind of opposition I may face, God is cutting a path for the gospel. I have to believe that he's doing that right now. You know, we we don't necessarily get that explanation every single situation that we're in. And you may never get that in, in, in many of them, but... God has you here to preach, to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is alive. That he came to the earth, died an atoning death to make us right with him through faith, by grace alone, and is one day returning. Could it be your situation in life maybe carving a path for the gospel to advance? We can't imagine that our current situation of life would rob us of excellent gospel opportunity. So long as I can at least think, I can pray. And if I can pray, then I can, through prayer, ask God to influence situations and lives of other people for His glory. You don't know the full effect of what you're doing in ministry at any given moment. Quiet prayer, a listening ear, an encouraging word, a compassionate rebuke, whatever you're led to do as you walk by the Spirit, rest in confidence in what He will do 
more than what you see right now. Does that make sense? Rest in that confidence. Obey, listen to that voice, that Holy Spirit calling you and saying, go talk to this person, go say this thing, go do that thing, pray, do whatever it is. Listen and obey and trust. The results are not on us. We'll talk about that in a minute. The result is ultimately what the Lord does through our efforts. So Paul's imprisonment meant that the whole imperial guard and the rest know that Paul's crime is preaching Christ. He's not saying that every one of these imperial guard suddenly became a Christian because he was there. He's not saying that, oh, I'm going through this really hard situation, therefore God is blessing me with great amount of fruit that I can see right now and everything's going perfectly. It's not the case. He simply says, so that all the imperial guard... In verse 13, it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And that is indeed our job in proclaiming Christ. Our job is not to change hearts. We don't get to sit there and say, I'm going to make you into a Christian in my own image. We testify what Christ has done for us to others and the Lord does the rest of the work. This praetorian, this imperial guard, by the way, usually made up of about 10,000 soldiers. For all Paul's influence, it's necessary to remember that he created disciples who created disciples. Created is probably not the right word there. He made disciples as he was commanded in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Paul's goal was not to make disciples and then go make more disciples and then just put it all on him, but to make disciples who make disciples. So, Even if, hypothetically here, if hypothetically you were able to reach one person in your entire life with the gospel, and you preached to hundreds of people, you shared with with hundreds of different people um, your testimony of faith in Christ, but only one person actually came to faith in Christ, does that mean that you failed? No. Because if that person's come to Christ, that means that they are making a disciple as well. Or that their goal, their whole purpose in life then, is to make disciples and to share that gospel. And God is going to work through those means to bring about his kingdom purposes. So, again, embrace your unique situation of life and find gospel opportunity there. Next thing. Find ways to stir up confidence and boldness in those with whom you share fellowship. Remember we talked about fellowship last week? Was this definition from... Is this on? Maybe this isn't on. Uh-oh. Can you move that slide for me, Joe, please? I think something's not working here. Okay, thank you. True gospel fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared cause. Okay, according to D.A. Carson, as he looks at this word that we looked at last week in the first section of the book. So, I want you to find ways to stir up confidence and boldness in those with whom you share fellowship because that was the second result of what happened with Paul while he was in prison. Verse 14, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Can you rely on a solo mission on your own without the help of other Christians? to share the gospel? I mean, the literal answer is, you could if you had to. But look around, and I want you to actually look around when I tell you to look around in a second, so just get ready to look around, okay? Look around! Thank you. 
there are other people here that by showing up, you're saying you are on mission to make Christ known. We have to find ways to stir up confidence and boldness with each other. I realize that when I'm walking in fellowship with another brother, a believer in Christ, that is on mission to make Christ known, that rubs off on me really quick. Even if if only in a competitive sense. I'm going to get real here for a second. There are moments where I've been so convicted and yet responded in a weird way of competition to say, well, boy, I ought to be witnessing to more people than that person is. That's just the truth. And to be completely honest, what we'll see here is that we can still rejoice that the gospel's proclaimed. So, true gospel fellowship, self-sacrificing conformity to a shared cause. Fellowship is strengthened and the gospel goes forth in greater advancement in part due to unity and Christian example. That was a really big run-on sentence. Part of why the gospel is advancing is because Paul is not really alone even though he's alone in prison. He's not alone on mission. And so you have to go to your job tomorrow and you have to go and you know, sit in your cubicle or stand in front of a bunch of students or whatever your job may be. You have to go and do that tomorrow. And you may, in your own mind, you know, the truth is, is you probably do because normal people don't wake up thinking, what is Crosspoint Community Church going to do today on this Monday when I go to clock in? But the truth is, is that you don't go by yourself. If you have a mindset of fellowship, of conformity to a shared cause, then you're going out into the world tomorrow to share Christ with people as a representative of the body of Christ, as a part of it. And I'm telling you that I'm praying for you tomorrow that you'll have great opportunities to show Christ. And that more importantly, because I know this is the harder part for me, that you'll obey the call to share Christ. I realized once I stopped praying and asking God to give me opportunities and started praying that God would make me obedient, guess what happened? I suddenly saw all the opportunities. It was as if they were there the whole time. The problem isn't that God's saying, oh, I forgot, I'm sorry, I meant to you know, open up the heart of this person so that they would receive the gospel. When... No, he's ready. Jesus said the fields are white for harvest. The problem is most often on us and our willingness to open our mouths. And that's not to say that tomorrow the first thing I want you to do after you clock in is go up to your boss and say, where are you going when you die? That's not what I mean. What I mean is, what is Jesus doing in your life right now that you can testify to others about when they ask you a question like, how's your day going? How was your weekend? Things like that. Nathan mentioned um, earlier that when he talks with people at work, that church is life, right? I mean, so if they ask how the weekend went, you say, well, I went to church and I had this church project and I did this meeting and, you know, those kind of things. Go Use those examples. That's easy. I, I shouldn't say. It's, it's not easy always to share Christ, okay? But what I mean is, is that you have material. Does that make sense? You have material to use. Even if it was just, we have a new pastor and he's a real bozo and I want to talk to you about him because he's... Use that. I don't care. That's fine. Use me. I don't. It doesn't matter. But take those opportunities that you have to share Christ with people. Um, could you switch to the next slide, please, Joe? The one after that. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So John Calvin said this: "It were indeed a dreadful spectacle, and such as might tend rather to dishearten us." Did we see nothing but the cruelty and rage of the persecutors? That is, he's saying, if we look at Paul in prison, if we look at the martyrs that are being persecuted right now as we speak, that there are brothers and sisters in prison 
They're being tortured because they will not renounce Christ. John Calvin says, if we only saw the cruelty and rage of the persecutors, when, however, we see at the same time the hand of the Lord, which makes his people unconquerable under the infirmity of the cross and causes them to triumph. Next slide, please. Relying upon this, we ought to venture farther than we had been accustomed, having now a pledge of our victory in the persons of our brethren. The knowledge of this ought to overcome our fears that we may speak boldly in the midst of dangers. Now, I know that there's at least a couple of you thinking, why in the world did he just put this huge theological treatise up there? I didn't follow it. One of the things that's on my mind when I'm preparing a sermon that I heard one time and I can't shake it is that if something that you read was beneficial to you, you have to share it. So, sorry, I'm sharing the whole thing. What it comes down to, though, is this. We may very well see this dreadful spectacle. We may know that there are brothers and sisters that are being tortured, persecuted, and are receiving harm because of their testimony of Christ. But, when we see in that the hand of the Lord, we ought to expect that what he's going to do in our hearts is not make us cower in fear, but press us boldly to advance the gospel. Does that make sense? Next slide, please, Joe. I can go back to that. Thanks. I don't know why my thing's not working. I'm going to try one more time. Did it just do it? Oh, just go back to the joy thing. I'm sorry. Not ready for that one yet. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the knowledge of this ought to overcome our fears so that we speak boldly, even in the midst of potential danger. And this is what happened when Paul was in prison. Other people knew he's in prison. I need to, I need to preach. I, I'm encouraged. I'm emboldened. I've thrown away my fear so that I can serve Christ by preaching the gospel. In seeing Paul, they saw the hand of the Lord, and rather than shrinking back, they became confident, bold, and fearless in sharing the gospel. And that is to share the word. That word in the Greek is logos, which you've probably heard before. Um, But it refers to the entirety of the message, the entirety that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came and lived a sinless life, who died an atoning death, who rose again on the third day and has ascended to heaven and is what? After that. Coming back. Right? He's coming back. I don't usually include that in my gospel presentation with non-believers. But it makes me wonder, after reading these passages, wondering, why not? You know? One day Jesus is going to return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. It could be 100 years from now. But he will return. So here's a question. What would happen if, regardless of how you feel in this very moment, at the end of the service, which is still coming pretty soon, so don't be worried. I'm not saying, yeah. Okay. The, the end of the service is coming soon. What if when the service ended, you stood up and you looked at somebody and you took this word and you looked them in the eye and you said, be bold, have no fear, speak the word. Those are not magical words, but they are from the passage we just read. It is God's words. And they don't you know, wash over you like pixie dust and then immediately change your mind. But I can tell you, speak boldly, have no fear, speak the word. And it might mean something to you. I hope it does. But what if you stood up and told that to somebody else? What if, what if one of you stood up and said that at the end? Just curious. I'll leave that with you. This next section, verses 15 through 18, is Paul's rejoicing in gospel proclamation. And if you are a little bit of a um, grammar nerd here, this section is a double chiasm. So, Calm down here. Don't get too excited, okay? 
A double chiasm is on its way. All that means is that Paul is going to go back and forth describing the two kinds of preachers that are mentioned here. So what you see in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim the gospel out proclaim Christ, sorry, out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So this guy has been going back and forth. Some are preaching from good motives, some are preaching from bad motives. Okay, here comes the moment where I decide whether I'm going to give you another Lord of the Rings illustration. Okay. You read somebody said they're ready. Thank you. All right, Anne, I appreciate that. Okay, so in the fellowship, remember the fellowship from last week? There's all these guys that stood up and said, we'll take the ring with you to Mordor, right? Just nod, remember? Yeah, okay, all right. And, and one of those guys is named Boromir. Is Boromir a good guy or a bad guy? Yeah, who said yes? <laughs> yeah, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, Boromir comes in and, you know, he's all about Gondor. He's all about the glory of his kingdom. And, and he wants to make much of his own kingdom, right? And what he thinks is, is that if he can get the ring of power on his finger, he might be able to save Gondor. That might be all that they really need, right? Well, throughout the fellowship, um, he's looking for an opportunity to take that ring from Frodo and ultimately, you know, attacks Frodo at one point and Frodo escapes and he doesn't get the ring, but he's overcome with great grief and repentance over what he had done. He realizes that he let the ring control him and that, that's, that you can't control this ring. You can't use evil to serve good purposes. It's a really, really good message in that book slash movie. But what Boromir does then is he becomes one who was on mission to destroy Sauron with the fellowship, right? He wanted to destroy evil. But he had a bad motive. He had this motive of being all about himself and thinking, I just need to get that ring on my finger and I will handle all these problems. Church, we're not meant to be that way. None of us are the cavalier that's meant to go off and cut the path by ourselves and preach the gospel and be the one who brings everything right. In fact, that is what Christ does. Christ is the one who conquers souls, right? We are the ones who proclaim the message. We're just heralds. We're just here saying, this is who Jesus is. And he calls you to believe on him and put your trust in him for salvation. Boromir's motives were twisted and flat out sinful, as it is with these preachers as well. James 1.8 gives us a good um, reminder that those uh, who are like this are double-minded. And yet, Paul still calls them brothers. It's very interesting. If we look at these people, we're, what we're seeing is most likely church leaders who were trying to rise to prominence um, against Paul. They, they don't like him for multiple reasons. There are a handful of reasons that you can see why, if you um, go into study, why they didn't like Paul. Um, we don't know specifically who Paul is referring here, to here, but we know he had enemies. And so um, 2 Corinthians is a good, passage, a good um, book to go to as well to understand how Paul dealt with these enemies. But he does call them brothers. He says, the, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry. Uh, they, they have these terrible motives. And he doesn't say at the end, you know, when he says, well, whatever happens, I'm just glad that the gospel is preached. He's not saying that to excuse those motives. Okay? Otherwise, why would he have mentioned them? Does that make sense? Of course, he's putting them out there, out there to say that motives matter. And at some point, those motives are going to rear their ugly head, either in a revealing word or an action contrary to the message that they're preaching. 
They fall into the same pit of envy as that of Cain with his brother. Can you move slides, please, Joe, to the next passage? So what we have with Cain and Abel is God's calling Cain and Abel to offer a sacrifice way back in Genesis 4. Abel offers a sacrifice from his herd, Cain from his crop, and the, and the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifice but rejects Cain's sacrifice. And so he asks this question to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God is not simply saying, I hate your sacrifice, and I want nothing to do with you. He's saying, your sacrifice is unacceptable, and here's what you need to watch out for. Okay? And this is, this is similar to where these brothers are falling right here. They are amongst the, the people of God, but they're letting envy be that sin that is crouching at their door. So Paul basically says, fine, God will deal with you in your sin. I will rejoice that more people are hearing the gospel of Christ. Paul is very clear in his teaching that the preacher of the message is not anything in gospel proclamation. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So it's not about the methodology or the intelligence or the gifting of the preacher. It's about who? God. Thank you. It's about God who's going to give that increase. And so don't walk out of here thinking, I'm ill-equipped because of my knowledge or even maybe because of sin in my life. For real. Deal with your sin. Repent of it. And then don't think, well, I I don't know. I have a bad attitude sometimes. I, I... you know, I said a couple cuss words last week. I don't really know if I'm worthy to preach the gospel. Guess what? None of us are. None of us are worthy to preach the gospel. But he calls and he wants to use us. And who are we? I'll go to the next passage, please. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, We have this treasure, this gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay. Simple, the most basic container you had at the time was a clay jar. And Paul says, that's what we are. But what we carry is an inexpressible treasure. We may consider ourselves simple or ineffective at times, but it is the treasure of the gospel that we hold on to to share with the world. If Paul could rejoice in the gospel being proclaimed by those with sinful motives, we ought to have boldness even in our weakness to proclaim Christ. You may not have this envious problem seeing somebody else preaching the gospel and you want to be like them and you're envious so you're preaching. That may not be the same thing. But switch out envy with some other sin that might be hindering you and we realize that we're not too far off. We can, re- we can repent of that sin and enter into the good that God is doing. Last big point here. Seek to make sharing the gospel your ultimate joy and purpose in whatever you do on a regular basis. Not surprisingly, Paul attaches himself to the upside-down nature of God's work and rejoices that if the message is preached, he can trust God to work even, perhaps in a special way, through those who preach with sinful motives. So look at this last verse. Excuse me, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's not sitting in his prison cell thinking, God, why are you letting so-and-so out there with his terrible motives to preach Christ while I'm sitting here wasting away in a prison? 
He's not doing that. He says, regardless of whether I can even speak, whether I'm hindered or whether I'm free, I rejoice that the gospel is being proclaimed. So this is Paul's ultimate goal. Paul was able to embrace and act upon this joy while he was in prison. So last week I said we ought to foster our fellowship with each other in order for greater unity when we're apart. Do you remember that? You can lie and nod and just say, oh yeah, I totally remember that. I've been working on it all week, right? Yeah, same. Um, so, so we ought to, while we're here together, foster and grow and nurture our friendships, our, our fellowship, rather, with each other, so that as we go out on our own, to our own circles of influence, we remember we're united to the body of Christ by His Spirit through faith in Christ, right? So that was last week. Today, let us seek the Lord to grow our joy in gospel proclamation while under the religious liberty that we do enjoy, we talked about today, so that when the day comes that it's taken away, we may rejoice all the same as Paul is. Because, you know, religious liberty is a great thing. It's something we need to wrestle with. It's something that, you know, we need to talk about as we did earlier this morning. But I think that one of the most important things that we need to remember about religious liberty is that it's not a guarantee. And it's not something that the Bible even promises to us and says, you will always have rulers over you who will let you preach the gospel. That could be taken away in a moment. While we have the opportunity to proclaim Christ freely, avail yourselves of that. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean standing up on the table by the water cooler and just preaching your heart out. If God tells you to do that, do it. Okay, but I'm not telling you to do it because I don't really know if that's what he wants. But it may be in a conversation. It may be in a passing encouragement. Where could God use you tomorrow to proclaim Christ? That's what Paul's doing. He's sitting in prison and he's rejoicing that the gospel message is being proclaimed. So joy in Christ is the greater, deeper gift of growing relationship with him. And as we grow in relationship with him, we naturally we talk, Kevin DeYoung posted this just this past week, and I thought he's absolutely right. We evangelize, we talk about the things that we love, right? Our favorite sports teams, our favorite movies, our favorite whatever it may be. We evangelize people on that. We say, boy, I really wish you'd watch The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> or whatever it might be, we talk about the things that we love. Christ is the love of your heart. If he is all, if he is your joy, then naturally that will be an overflow. So to put that in reverse, if our problem is that we're not preaching Christ like we wish we would, maybe we need to check our hearts. I'm not saying you need to immediately jump to the conclusion that you need to come up here and pray your eyes out and get saved all over again. Okay? If God has started something in you, we know from last week that he will finish it, right? But along the way there, there will be times where we perhaps sit back and think, oh, I don't have time for gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation is the only thing you have time for. It really is. It's the only reason that we're here. And every place that you go, you're set there to proclaim Christ. But we're not called to proclaim a Christ that is more like, hey, do you know where you're going to go when you die? Do you want to believe in Jesus? so that you can go to heaven instead of hell. Hell's a bad place. I don't want you to go there. Uh, Jesus has done great things for my life. Is anybody going to believe you? No. And I'm not saying that you need to be jumping up and down and you know, always excited about every little thing in life. But I will tell you this. People know joy when they see it. Right? People know it when they see it. And if you know Christ... 
You have it. And if you don't feel it today, don't think that means that you don't have it. It means that you need to access it. It means you need to receive it today. You need to recenter your heart. Um, let's look at Psalm 1611 to stop here, please. Um, this last one. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite passages. You make known to me, God, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When I'm joyless, I need to go to the one with whom, in his presence, there, excuse me, there's fullness of joy. Right? So, last slide here. We're going to do something a little bit different. Um, one after that, please. So, I'm going to leave you with a couple of things here to pray about. And um, I figure, you know, this is only my second sermon, so try not to change too much. But I'm going to change this one little thing that's, that's going to involve you praying and responding. Okay, um, so I don't mean to, can you go ahead and put the rest of the things up there so that people can start looking at them? Um, I don't mean for this to be a time where you have to like stretch out of your comfort zone suddenly and I got to go over and pray with somebody. If the Lord's calling you to go pray with somebody, then do it. But I'm only going to ask you to pray through a couple of these things. Okay, in light of what we talked about. I know that one of my hardest struggles is after I hear a sermon, good or bad, after I hear a sermon, is that, you know, I turn the podcast off, I leave the church, I, I, I move on to, I don't leave the church, you know, but I, I leave the building, I move on to the next thing, and I so quickly am like what James talks about, the guy who looks at his face in the mirror and moves away and immediately forgets what he saw, immediately forgets the very thing, okay? So, so I came up with these three statements here to give you promptings to pray, and so um, I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, or, or David to come up and um, strum the guitar a little bit to create some atmosphere for you. <laughs> um, just, just to get our minds on Christ and just to focus for a moment on something that this passage has left us. Maybe you need to embrace the joy of knowing the gospel is advancing. Maybe in the simplest pattern, just say, regardless of what's going on in my life, I'm going to take joy. The gospel, the gospel is being preached. Christ is being proclaimed. Right here, right now, we're proclaiming Christ, right? Amen? This is a good thing. There are other places all over the world where Christ is being proclaimed. Maybe you just need to take that one thing and say, praise God, the gospel's going out. Maybe you need to ask the Lord to create joy and stir up confidence in your heart for gospel advancement in your own life. Maybe you need to, you know, rather than say, okay, look, Lord, I know that you've been calling me to something like this. I need to commit to you to boldly cast aside fear and any other hindrance so that I can pursue gospel chances in the week ahead. I'm going to call you to pray by yourself. If you feel led to go pray with somebody else, do it. That's fine. But I'm going to just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Not that that's a magical formula to prayer, but it's to help us focus in on something here. I'll give you a few moments and then we'll pray and then sing our last song.